Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the AFCA program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Willett. I'm Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundation and, like Judd, have served at the National Security Council as well as the U.S. State Department and Senate Foreign Relations. This podcast is everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards Sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about Sierra Leone, and we are joined by Ade Dermi, a journalist, broadcaster, social commenter, and media trainer. He is also an editor at the Journal of Sierra Leone Studies and the African lifestyle magazine, Promota Africa. Nicole, can you walk us through the history of U.S. policy towards Sierra Leone? The United States assigned a consul to Sierra Leone two years before its independence in 1961. JFK appointed a former congressman from Missouri as the first U.S. ambassador to the country. The U.S. Navy claimed that because Sierra Leone's capital, Freetown, had the third largest natural harbor in the world, it wanted to have positive relations. Plus, the country has important resources such as diamonds, iron, rutile, a titanium ore, and apparently piasava, which is the source of bristles and heavy-duty brooms. I encourage everyone to look that one up. Sierra Leonean leader Shaka Stevens occasionally stoked anti-U.S. sentiment. Stevens kicked out individual embassy officers and whipped up public anger against the United States, leading to demonstrations at the embassy compound. Stevens usually lashed out when he felt threatened domestically, but he was suspicious of the United States, even alleging that the U.S. had dispatched a submarine to Freetown's harbor. But in the 1990s, as the civil war in Liberia escalated, the U.S. Embassy Freetown played a key role in the non-combatant evacuation of Americans and other third country nationals out of neighboring Liberia, some 2,400 people. At this point, the relations with Sierra Leone were generally positive. President MoMA even agreed to send a 26-man medical unit to support Operation Desert Storm in the Persian Gulf. That said, the United States pushed the government on democracy, human rights, and corruption and pulled the USAID mission because of the country's poor performance in those areas. In 1991, the Revolutionary United Front, the RUF, invaded Sierra Leone from Liberia. A year later, the disgruntled military, led by a 25-year-old captain, Valentine Strasser, overthrew President MoMA. The United States evacuated most of the embassy in response to the insecurity. A second coup occurred four years later. The new government was led by Julius Mata Bio, who agreed to hold elections. The U.S. played a role here by arranging for educational opportunities abroad if the soldiers gave up power. Mata Bio went to the American University after stepping down, returned to Sierra Leone, and is now the country's current president following the election in 2018. In 1997, there was yet another coup led by Johnny Paul Karoma, who invited the RUF to join his government. This started a new phase of the conflict, and the United States Embassy was again evacuated. The U.S. helped support and train many of the West African regional peacekeeping forces that helped end the war. The U.S. Embassy returned with a skeleton crew in 1998, and its response to the conflict and its humanitarian consequences became a major preoccupation. The war officially ended in 2002. The United States supported the country's recovery, including rebuilding and strengthening institutions such as the Anti-Corruption Commission, the Electoral Commission, and the Legislature, as well as the Special Court of Sierra Leone, 
which tried Charles Taylor for war crimes. President Cabo stepped down in 2007. His party lost at the ballot box, marking one of the few peaceful alternations of power in the region. In appreciation for the role of the international community during the war, Sierra Leone has hosted a peacekeeping military depot in Freetown and raised its hand to send troops to Somalia. It didn't work out as well as people hoped because of the Ebola outbreak. And of course, the United States was instrumental in leading the global public health response. In 2018, Sierra Leone witnessed another handover of power between its two main parties. Matabio, the former coup leader, was elected president. So, Judd, do you want to talk about a major U.S. success or policy failure? I think there's a lot of things that we can point to, right? The, the role the U.S. played in the post-war recovery, the role that the U.S. played in terms of responding to Ebola. But as I was doing the research for this podcast, one thing struck me. We had so many of our very senior U.S. diplomats at various times in our embassy having been returnees, having served in Peace Corps, having been a junior officer. And I think that there's something really special about Sierra Leone. I hadn't expected it in terms of this sort of constant shuffle of of U.S. officials and U.S. diplomats and aid workers who really know this country who are raising their hand again and again to serve. And I think that that's probably undergirds some of the successes we've had over the, the many years. Ade, what should the Biden administration's strategy towards Sierra Leone be? Now, myself and many other Sierra Leoneans are quite optimistic. I'm old enough to have remembered John F. Kennedy and the impact of his death in Sierra Leone. I can remember my parents and others actually weeping openly. And I was quite young at the time. And uh, I remember being shocked. But, you know, as time went on, I got to understand, you know, what this meant and why people were so upset. Now, in terms of American engagement, what we would like to see is uh, a kind of, there's a kind of romantic notion that there'll be a sort of return to the sort of uh, Kennedy years when, as has been mentioned elsewhere, there were a lot of peace corps who came to Sierra Leone. I went to a couple of schools where some of the teachers were actually members of the peace corps. And they left a brilliant impression. Um, some of them actually settled and, and actually married Sierra Leoneans, you know, as, as it turned out to be. But I think one of the things that people remember is that the Peace Corps and American policy seemed to be a sort of bulwark against um, the Soviet Union as it was then. But you know what? I went to school where we had this uh, organization care. They brought in oils. They brought in cornflour, which, you know, we used to, was cooked at our schools. And I can remember teachers going home with, you know, gallons of the stuff, uh, the oil under their arms, and the whole USAID sort of package. Uh, one of the things it did, unfortunately, was that uh, whereas schools used to buy local produce to cook for children, uh, they now relied almost 100% on the stuff that we used to get from the US. And that impacted on the market quite significantly. And, you know, I was discussing this with a cousin of mine who went to the same school in the 1960s. And I don't think we realized at the time, it was only with hindsight that we realized what the impact was. We just enjoyed the food. Uh, to many of us, this was new and it was different. And I think people want the Biden administration because now, for most Americans, they would see China as, you know, the threat. And I don't say this in any kind of sort of negative way, just that America had kind of withdrawn from Sierra Leone and from much of Africa. And so uh, China has stepped in. China would step in, they wouldn't make demands about democracy and that sort of thing. In fact, they didn't care uh, whether they were dealing with a despot or a democrat. Whilst the US, of course, had those sorts of principles that they wanted to stick to and stand by, 
And Sierra Leone, as you rightly said, might have been okay with a kind of, is a, a peaceful handover in an election. It wasn't a coup d'etat at this time, like the time when he was a soldier. And so we want the engagement to be around the fact that, you know, these are democratic countries. Sierra Leone is a democratic country and not quite equals, but Sierra Leoneans will tell you that they don't want sort of handouts. Uh, what we want is some sort of partnership. Nicole, how do we make what Ade is talking about happen in the interagency? So Ade may not want to say it, but I will. It's absolutely a negative thing that previous administrations have withdrawn from the continent as an area of real focus. And we should change that. I do think the Biden administration has had a much more proactive approach to the continent. It's the early days, but we can already see that when it comes to Ethiopia or a few other select countries, they've been willing to lean in with a lot more proactivity around building relationships or responding to what, at least in the Ethiopia case, is a pretty serious crisis. But having a policy for one or two countries or five countries on the continent is not a continent-wide policy. So there's more that can be done. And I think, as Ade has said really clearly, and as you have, Judd, Sierra Leone is a special place in the hearts and minds of some Americans, and it sounds like Sierra Leoneans as well. And that's something that we should remember in any policy that we put in place. And in terms of how we drive that forward in the interagency, because a lot of this is about soft power or even taking away the power piece of this, right, and and just talking about partnership, this is a place where the interagency would be wise to focus on what those on the ground need and want. So sometimes in the inter interagency, we can get really focused on what the opinions on policies are that come from Washington. And in Sierra Leone, this strikes me as especially important to bring into the interagency process a conversation about what post, right? So what the embassy, what the USAID mission, what the Peace Corps mission, what those organizations and agencies who are actually located on the ground think would be most useful to benefit the relationship, to benefit at the government level, at the civil society level, at the youth-to-youth -youth partnership level. There are so many sort of soft tools that we don't employ. So we should be doing what's good for people in Sierra Leone and lean into that. That does not take a huge amount of interagency coordination. It just takes some money and a bit of space for those on the ground to determine what's most needed. So Ade, can I ask you on that front, do you have any big creative ideas, even ones that aren't totally developed that you're willing to talk about, about how we might actually continue to build on that relationship? Yeah, I, my big idea is I think the Olympics have just finished. And, you know, I've looked at the sort of pretty poor performance of um, the kind of the West African subregion, Sierra Leone, the Gambia and others. And since I've been visiting these countries, what I've realized is that there's a lot of athletic talent. And I would love to see, you know, it's not probably what our governments would ask for, but it's what I would ask for as a sports loving person is, you know, for uh, scholarships um, to, uh, you know, America, where we know that there are very high athletic standards for some of these athletes who otherwise they would never get to develop their talent in countries like the Gambia and Sierra Leone. And really, you know, something like obviously Basketball Africa League has just uh, been launched. It's in collaboration with the NBA. You know, basketball will never take over from football. 
the soccer, as they call it in America, but nonetheless, it's becoming popular in Africa. And yet there are very, very few basketball courts and so on. And so for a lot of people who feel in Sierra Leone that there aren't opportunities, just building a series of basketball courts around the country, offering things like athletic scholarships. As I said, it's not the big thing that government would ask for, you know, but they would probably ask for infrastructural projects. But for myself and others who, as I said, we've watched the Olympics and we watched how underprepared our athletes were, that's one of the things that I would definitely ask for, yeah. I think that's exactly right. It's a hearts and mind approach. It's soft power. But that, I think, is perennially one of our strong suits when it comes to engaging in Africa. So I think that's a, a great idea, Abe. Last question for you is that, you know, Ghana in 2019 hosted its year of return, right? That was linked to the 400th anniversary of enslaved Africans landing in the United States. It was a big success, connected Ghana to the global African diaspora. Does Sierra Leone have the same potential uh, in preparing for our episode, there are so many Americans and British who trace their ancestry back to Sierra Leone, and including, obviously, Idris Elba. Is there an opportunity here for Sierra Leone to really connect to the diaspora? Or maybe they're already doing it and there's a way to get to the next level. They are doing it and they should be doing it more. And Sierra Leone, actually, if it was uh, better handled, could have the same impact. And I can tell you on a personal level that uh, the Minister for Tourism in Sierra Leone was kind of biting her fingers when she, she realized what Ghana had done with the year of return, really wishing that she had done something similar. Because if you think about Sierra Leone's connection with the slave trade, both the, the, the start of it and the end of it, you know, this deep natural harbor that we're talking about was ideal for boats to come right up to the coast and take slaves when the slave trade started. And of course, when it was ended by the British initially, Freetown, hence the name, was founded by freed and returned slaves. And so, again, it was ideal as a point from which to uh, take people back. And so, just in the last few days before this uh, podcast, I've been railing against the fact that we have all these historic sites linked to the slave trade. We've never been able to monetize them or, or capitalize on them because some of them have been on the waiting list of UNESCO's World Heritage Sites for 15 years. Sierra Leone's never been good at pushing things. And I, I complained to UNESCO. I said, how can something be on the waiting list for 15 years? What are you waiting for? You have all the evidence that backs this up. And so Sierra Leone has so many things that it could do that actually could actually push it to the same level as Ghana, without a doubt. Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks.